Please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. You're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. In college, I remember taking an ancient literature class with Dr. Weaver. And uh, that was an interesting class for me, kind of a terrifying one. I remember we read Homer's Odyssey, and the project for that class was writing a 10-page paper using a phrase from the Odyssey no longer than six words long. And I remember my head exploding. How am I going to write 10 pages on six words? And I really struggled with that, and Dr. Weaver was great. And it was a stressful time, and uh, I didn't see just the creativity of the Odyssey and just how good it was. And in the years past, I've come to appreciate um, this fictional work by Homer. It's a story of a man named Odysseus and a 10-year journey home after the Trojan War. And him and, and his men experienced many dangers. They experienced Polyphemus. He was a cyclops who the first night were there ate two members of the crew and two for breakfast and then two for dinner before escaping. And then they faced uh, Lystragonians, which was a group of cannibals, which destroyed all of their ships except for one, the one that Odysseus was, uh, was sailing on. And then they went to the island of Circe, who turned half of the pigs into swine, and it took a year uh, to get off the island to get them turned back. And they faced the sirens, which if you know the story of their beautiful singing, would attract ships in to be destroyed. They had to nav navigate in between Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla was this six-headed monster that when ships passed by, each of the heads would snatch up one of the people in the ship and eat them. And, uh, and Charybdis was just this enormous whirlpool that threatened to swallow any ship that could come by. There were other dangers in the story that they faced. But after 10 long and grueling years of travel, they made it home to their families. And the implication, one of the implications of the whole story was that it was a vision of home that led them to continue putting one foot in front of the other in the face of every hardship and challenge that they faced. And the Odyssey is just one story of thousands of stories, both fictional like the Odyssey, and also historical stories about a quest, a long journey in which the protagonists had numerous reasons and opportunities to give up, but they persevered. They did so because their eyes were fixed on the end of the journey, the wonders and the blessings that were to be found there. And our passage this morning talks about one such quest. It's one of the greatest quests in the history of the world. It's the story of the three magi. Wise men from the east who traveled far to come and to worship Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel that writes of their journey, that writes of their quest. 
And we're going to look at that story this morning. Again, this is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is our great God's word to us. Let's give it our full attention. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too might come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we thank you for your word, this word that is breathed out by you. Lord, that you have given to mold and shape us, to remind us of Christ and of the gospel, and that we have salvation through you. Lord, we look at this example of the Magi this morning. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, Lord, that you would use it to equip us and strengthen us and encourage us and give us your joy that we too may come and we may worship you. We thank you for this word. We ask that you would use it to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Who were the wise men, these magi that came to worship Jesus? Matthew is not clear where they're from. Other than that we see in the text that they came from the east. It is very possible that they were magi from Persia, which was a scholarly priestly class that served as advisors to dignitaries, to government leaders, and to kings. If we actually read in Daniel chapter 2, verses 48 and 4, verse 9, we see that Daniel himself was actually made chief of the magi when he was in exile in Babylon. And it's also known historically that a large Jewish community remained in Babylon when some went back to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple and its walls. And they persisted there. And then later, thereafter, Persia came and defeated Babylon. And for centuries beyond Nebuchadnezzar's reign, they continued to study the Old Testament. So it's possible that they were from Persia. 
Others suggested they were from India or for China. Again, scripture is not clear, so we can somewhat speculate. But regardless of whether it's Persia or it's China or it's India or maybe somewhere else, there is one thing from history that is not disputed. And that is the fact that the Magi traveled a great distance, hundreds, perhaps even over a thousand miles to come and to worship Jesus. And it is significant that they were Gentiles. It's significant that they were Gentiles. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, why was the birth of the king of the Jews made known to these foreigners and not to those nearer home? Why did the Lord select those who were so many hundreds of miles away while the children of the kingdom in whose very midst the Savior was brought forth were yet strangers that were ignorant of his presence? Spurgeon raises a great point. Jesus is the king of the Jews. So why did God make his name known or make his birth known to these foreigners and not to more of those that were in Israel? Sure, we saw last week that his birth was proclaimed to the shepherds the night that he was born. And so they came and they worshiped him that evening. But why was his birth not revealed to the religious leaders or to those that were in power? It could be several things, but one thing is for certain. It's meant to show forth God's heart for the nations. To show that God's gospel is his power unto salvation for everyone who would believe, both for Jews and for Gentiles, which is everyone else. So what does this mean for us this morning? It means that the gospel is a message for you and for me. It's a message for every one of us because we are of the nations. In this room, we are either Jew or Gentile. And if the Holy Spirit works faith in us that we read of this morning, then we can be assured that we are among those that God has chosen for salvation. And so as we dig into this text this morning, let us learn from the wise men, from these magi, about God's grace, that we too may come and joyfully worship him. First, let's notice the worthiness of Christ the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped. It's displayed through their treacherous journey. Again, we don't know exactly where the Magi are from, but we read here in verse 1 that they came from the east. Whether that was from Persia or India or China or somewhere else, those are the three most common theories. But again, it was long. And that journey coming from the east meant one thing for sure. It meant that they had to travel over a lot of treacherous terrain, particularly through deserts, which possessed all kinds of dangers. We think of the dangers that came from the nations. The Amalekites, for example, were known 
for actually having caravans that would travel across the desert as raiding parties to attack other caravans, to steal their wares. And then you had dangers that came from wildlife, deadly scorpions, cobras, including king cobras that you would die within minutes of being bit by, oases that were rare and far and in between that others would have been competing for the resources for. Then there is the possibility of sandstorms that could last for quite some time, constantly pelting you with high winds and abrasing your skin. And then there is the danger of quicksand. In that culture, some of them, or some of their cultures in that area, they would actually call it devil sand. Now, it's not typically like that in the swampy type areas or places like that we could think of. It usually wasn't quicksand that was deep enough that would swallow a person whole. That could happen, but that was not what was most common. What was most common in those deserts is that it would sink you up to your waist, maybe to your chest, and it would hold you there and you couldn't get out. And whether by dehydration from the sun or a passing scorpion or king cobra, you would meet your demise. There are many dangers that they could have faced, but yet they took the long journey. Only a quest in, some, in search of something that is precious, something that it's, that's important, would warrant that kind of risk. After all, these were wise men. They were magi. They could have remained in the comfort of their studies, in their high leadership and scholarship and scholarly positions. They could have remained where they came from, continuing to advise people in high positions in their culture. But they risked hardship. They risked uncertainty. They risked even the possibility of death to come and to worship Jesus. Let's make sure that we don't miss the point. The point is not in their heroism. It's not in their perseverance. But the point is that Jesus was worthy of their worship. He was worthy of them taking the risk. Because there's a wonder, there's a glory, there's a beauty about Jesus that when compared to everything in the world, it's all worth sacrificing. If that is the price that must be paid to come and to worship him, The Apostle Paul says it so well in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For Paul, the greatest treasure was knowing Jesus. And in comparison to everything else, all of it was rubbish. And for the Magi, this included even their very own lives. They were willing to put them on the line in order to come to Bethlehem, to come and to worship Jesus. 
Friends, let us pray every day that the Holy Spirit would enthrone Christ in that way within our hearts so that we may worship him as more precious than even everything that the world could give to us and that we could get through the work of our own hands or the hands of others. And would the Holy Spirit enthrone Christ in our hearts in such a way that we would be willing to give it all up as rubbish if that time were to come? Because that is the surpassing beauty and glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Moving along in our text, let's notice in verse 11 the humility that the Magi displayed as they worshiped him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. (coughs) Two things are worth noting. First, we see that they saw the child. Now, we can breeze past that phrase. Indeed, in the Greek, it can mean literally to just visually see. But it was also used to describe seeing with the mind. It carried the weight of being acquainted with something, not merely by looking, but by experience as well. What does that mean? Again, I pull on Spurgeon. I think that he preached it well. He says, I do not think they merely said, there he is. And so ended the matter, but they stood still and they looked. Perhaps for some minutes they did not speak. About his very face, I do not doubt, there was a supernatural beauty. Whether there was a beauty to everyone's eye, I know not. But to theirs, there was assuredly a superhuman attraction the incarnate God. They gazed with all their eyes. They looked and looked and looked again. They saw Jesus. Again, the word carries the weight of not just seeing, but perceiving and seeing in a way that experienced Let us, friends, gaze upon Jesus. He has given us his word. We see who he is from beginning to end because all of scripture points to him. Let us come every day to his word and read about him and gaze upon him, meditate on who he is and what he has done and who we are to him as his covenant people the ones that he came to redeem and save. Let us be people of his book that we may know him. So they saw the child. We notice also in verse 11 that to worship him, they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. No greater sign of submission and worship could have been given in that culture Their acts suggest that they believed him to be the savior of the world. J.C. Ryle said that they believed in him when they saw him, a little infant on Mary's knee and worshiped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. 
They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet, when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. So they fell down and worshiped him. What does it look like for us to do that? To fall down and to worship Jesus. Paul writes of it this way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God in the gospel that he laid out in those first 11 chapters of Romans all comes to this point. In view of these mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. It's a call for our entire lives to be a worship to him in thought, word, and deed. It's a call to living missionally. Not to do missions as a side gig or activity, but to live our life in worship and of service to our great God. It's living life itself as mission. It's one of the reasons as a church, if you look at our church calendar, we intentionally try to keep our events low, our programming low. Those can have their place, but we keep them low for a purpose. Not because we're incapable of having events or programs. We keep our calendar more clear for the purpose of living as sacrifices to the Lord, of seeking to glorify Him and to be salt and light for Him, sharing about His glory with the people that we work with and the people that we live next to, the strangers that we come up to in the coffee shop and on the streets, the people that are in the places where we go to recreate, in our jujitsu clubs, in our gaming groups, and when we go to the library for events or whatever it may be, to go where people are because Jesus has come as a light to the nations. We seek to be a congregation, therefore, that lives missionally in all that we do. This is how we can worship Jesus for our bodies to be a living sacrifice, to indeed worship him in thought, word, indeed. And moving now to the third point in our text, let's finally notice the gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus. We see this in verse 11. It says that they opened their treasures. Let's not miss that. Not just mere gifts, but treasures. They offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are indeed treasures. They are expensive gifts. They are the type of gifts that the Magi themselves would appreciate, gifts that we would appreciate and that we would value. But they are worth giving up in order to worship this newborn king, the divine son that became flesh. The gifts themselves 
prophetically point toward who he is and what he would do. First, they point to who he is, that indeed he is God come in the flesh and that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they show secondly what he would do, that he would be the Savior of the world for all of those that would believe in him. We see who he is in the gift of gold. It's the currency of kings. But not just any king in this case. The king of the universe. The one who created heaven and earth. The one alone who is God. Who exists from everlasting to everlasting. We see who he is in the frankincense. We see this divinity there. Because incense was a common thing used in worship to gods, used in the temple to worship God himself. It's a sign of his divinity. This is not just a mere man like you and me, but he is God's son come in the flesh. And what about the myrrh? The myrrh is a reflection of what he would do. What was his mission? Why would God come and take on flesh? Why would he come from glory where there is no pain and suffering and death nor pain, where there is no sin and where he does not have to experience its horrors firsthand in a body and feel the pain? The myrrh points to why. Myrrh was a common embalming oil that was used to embalm a body after its death and before its burial. It indeed was therefore a symbol of death itself. Jesus had come to die. <laughs> he came to die so that we could live. And so when we look at the gifts of the Magi, what do we see? We see signs and we see symbols of the gospel. We see signs and symbols of the gospel. This is God come in the flesh to live a perfect life because we can't because we are sinners, fallen short of God's glory. And because of that sin, both in our nature of birth and in the sin in which we do every day, we are worthy of death and we are worthy of condemnation. And there is no amount of good works that we could ever do to escape the wrath of God that is rightfully ours. Because if we fall short in God's law at one point, we become a lawbreaker and we are worthy of condemnation. That's who we were from birth and through our actions as sinners. And God knew that we had no way of self-escape. And so from all eternity past, even before the foundation of the world, God, knowing we would fall, established a covenant of redemption 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit already putting a plan forth and in motion to bring a substitute for us because we can never, ever earn God's favor nor his love. And so he sent his divine son into the world and Jesus willfully came. He willfully came to live that perfect life, to be that perfect record for us. But that wasn't enough because we need more than a perfect record. We need that wrath of God that we deserve to be taken away. And so he went to the cross. He could have called down legions of angels to stop it all. And he was mocked because he didn't. But he stayed on the cross to save all of those who would believe in him. To take that wrath of God upon his shoulders and through the work of the Holy Spirit then have his work of righteousness imputed to us, credited to our account so that we could stand perfect before God. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. But he was raised to life three days later. Raised to life to die nevermore so that we could experience the same. And so he ascended into heaven and he sat down. And from then to this day, he has been reigning from that throne over heaven and earth. And we have a glorious promise that one day he is coming again. Coming for all of us who believe. To take us home. To heavenly glory. To be with him for eternity. He is the divine son come to save you and me by grace through faith. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, in closing, this holiday season, let me encourage you, as I also encourage myself, let us not focus on the gifts that we will receive. We will appreciate those, will we not? The gifts from our loved ones, but let that not be our greatest focus. Let our greatest focus be on the greatest gift that we have received. Jesus, the divine son, come to offer salvation to all who would believe. And so for you, what is the next step of worship to him that you can take this holiday season? in your heart, in your mind, in your hands, in the way that you serve. Perhaps you came here this morning not knowing who he is. The gospel is God's power unto salvation for everyone who believes. And as we have seen this morning, that gift of faith, that doesn't come from you. God gives it of his grace. So perhaps your step this morning is just to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, to give up all your striving to earn God's love or favor because in Christ and through faith in him, it's freely given completely and fully without end. Perhaps your next step is to be purified with a motive or a process of thinking or a way of serving. Come to this king and worship him. Come to him in prayer and see what marvelous things that he will do. Friends, let us come to him, to Jesus, 
and worship him, the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son, that we are worthy of condemnation, but through Christ we are redeemed and we are made whole that we are set free from the law of sin, that we may live in newness of life to your glory and to the love of our neighbor, that we are free from eternal condemnation because in Christ there is no condemnation, that what the righteous require in the law could not fulfill and that it is weak through the flesh you, Father, did by sending your own Son so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to, to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so it is upon your grace that we fall this morning and thrown yourself within our hearts that indeed we would worship you, that we would be living sacrifices to your glory, to the building up of one another and to living missionally, proclaiming your kingdom and your gospel throughout the earth. We give you the glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This sermon was recorded at Living Hope Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more sermons and resources, visit livinghopeth.com.